Good morning. One of my, my joys, one of my favorite things to do is actually to start a clap. So uh, I think Paul is gone, but when he, uh, we also want to encourage him and Catherine and the kids. And so we, afterwards, after the service, there's going to be a little dessert uh, hangout time. So there's some lunch, some dessert. So please hang out. Make sure you give them a hug and uh, bless them as, as, as they head off to Colorado later this week. Well, as Carson just said, we are starting a new... Uh, something new. We have these discipleship groups that we are launching this week, but we're also combining them with a sermon series. And both are connected because a few months back, we as a church voted on a new church covenant. So you ask, what is a church covenant? That's a great question. Let me tell you. A church covenant is a commitment between church members to live out our Christian lives together. A a, a pastor named Aaron Menikoff says it this, says it, says it really well. He says, if a statement of faith, I think it'll be, yeah, if a statement of faith is a synopsis of right dops, uh, doctrine, the covenant summarizes right living. The covenant aids church leaders and members by describing what a Christian life looks like. And proper use of a church covenant then encourages members to take responsibility for each other's holiness. So with that in mind, and considering that we're going to spend 13 weeks, five weeks um, right now, these next five weeks, we're going to take a break in the summer. And then in September, we're going to kick off another eight weeks where we'll be looking at our church covenant. And we're calling this series Life in the Family of God. And we think we're doing this because we, and we think it will be significant for several reasons. One, it will grow in our understanding of the covenant and its biblical foundations. It's new for us as a church. And so let's walk through it. Let's talk about it. Let's get familiar with it. And then also see how it's, it isn't just the, the thoughts of what the elders think we should do as a church, but it's rather it's grounded in God's word. So let's learn those foundations. Two, let's, it, it, we, we hope that it will re, re, renew our vision to be an active, vibrant church community known for being joyful disciples of Jesus. Look, we're all coming out of a weird time. And what a better time to say, let's under, remind ourselves what it means to be the church and step into that. And, la- and all this is to this third end, that we would flourish. It is our desire that our church would not just meet on Sunday or even meet in little groups or even just hang out and play ping pong, although those things are lovely. We want to flourish This is what God's called us to. We want us individually to flourish in Christ, to grow, to to be excited about God's grace and to let that grace shape our lives. Not just eke by or just tack this on to the weak, but that we would flourish. This is a covenant is between members and we do believe in membership and we'll talk a little bit more about that today. But this series, one of the reasons we're doing this as a sermon series is because it's not just for members. So whether you've been attending from Maranatha for four weeks or four years, look, we're laying out our cards so that you would see what, what we believe is God's call on our lives to live as a local church. And we want it to be an invitation. See, is this where God has placed you to step in? And if so, step into that. So... That is the goal. That's the big picture. 
But I think you could take that down now. That'd be great. Thank you so much. But as we begin, I want, us, I want to ask us a question. Who are we? Who are we? Who are we individually? And who are we collectively? Like understanding who we are has massive implications for how we approach our life together. I taught at a, some of you know, I used to teach at a, a high school. And uh, right out of college, I, I taught social studies. Um, and the school, it was a small little private school. And they tried to be a prep school. But it wasn't a prep school. It was kind of like this small little local private Christian school. And, and so they tried to then also have this sports program over here. And it was always a sports school. But were, we were only really good at basketball. So, and then we tried to be, be, be this family, this like little, a, a, a school that was really closely knit together. But there were people that were kind of getting busted in from all over the place. So in other words, we didn't know who we were. And it was a frustration to the kids and to the, to the teachers, to the administration, because we're, we're, we're trying to all do different things. And as a result, it was frustrating to teach there and to work there because we didn't know who we are. Maybe you can relate to that. There are several ways that we can say, who are we as God's, God's people? What does it mean to be the church? And, 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 and there are lots of ways to answer. Some people say, it's a social club. You know, uh, a guy named Robert Putnam, he was a... a political scientist uh, at Harvard. I think he's still alive. He's pretty old. But he wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And he, and he, re- he, he, he showed that, that social organizations like bowling clubs were in decline in America. And what that meant was that the social fabric was tearing apart. That the, these clubs that we used to be a part of, they're, they're declining in membership. You know, the Elk Lodge or uh, the, the Rotary Club. Some people see church as just a, a, a social organization. Others see it as a political organization. That, that we latch onto a political goal of change and that we're motivated even by scripture, and, and, but our aim and our focus is politically, politically driven. Some it's just relationships. And I know many of you, I, one, of my, one of the things that happens at Maranatha, if you're new here, people will hang out here until 6 o'clock at night. And a lot of you, I've talked to many of you, I mean, me growing up, there was always this older deacon who was shutting lights out as you're like, come on, you've got to get out of here, trying to hang out. But many of you have grown up that this wasn't, like, your church community wasn't just your church community. It was the friend group. It was the, it was the network of relationships for you. And so staying there all day was, was normal. And so some of us still see church as just relational. Others see it as just a moral institution. We want our kids and we want to be good people. All of these miss the mark of what God calls us to. So this morning, I I want to consider from Scripture what God says about who we are. And 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 I hope and pray that it will kindle a flame in us to live as God's people. So with that... 
I want, to, I want to read the opening paragraph of the covenant. And if you want to read it, they're right out there, right at the front door when you grab one when, they're at, uh, when you go out. But I want to read the opening paragraph because what we're going to do, we're going to look at each paragraph through these 13 weeks. We'll, we'll spend two weeks on this first one. But this is how it opens. It says, Having, as we trust, been brought by God's sovereign grace to repent from sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, And having professed faith in Christ and having been baptized, we, the members of Maranatha Grace Church, earnestly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other as we strive to grow in Christ together. That's a big paragraph. Let me summarize it with two points. That we're saved by God and that we live out our our life together. That's what that opening section says. And this is, again, this this is simply an echo from what Scripture says. So if you have a Bible, and I'd invite you to open your Bible to 1 Peter. If you don't have one, there should be some under the seat. So if you need a Bible, you're free to take that one. 1 Peter. And we're going to look at three passages from uh, Peter's letter here. We're going to look at one in uh, verse, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, 2, chapter 2, 9 to 10, and then 5, 1 to 5. And we're doing so to to try to understand who are we as a church and what implications does that have on our life together. So Paul is, uh, I'm sorry, Peter is, Peter's letter is written to fellow Christians who have been scattered throughout the region of what modern day Turkey is. They were facing rising opposition and ostracization. They were getting pushed out of society. So Peter's letter is meant to remind them and, and encourage them and help them live in the face of difficulty. So how does he do it? He begins by saying, do you remember who you are in God? Remember the the new life that God has given you. And then once they understand that, once they're grounded in that, he now says, now you can live as God's people. Look at verse 3. He says, of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We were just singing about it. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's encouragement to his fellow fellow Christians is a reminder uh, of who they are. He says, you are those who have been made alive by God. And you've been made alive because of his great mercy. Peter, again, grounds everything in the letter on this fact. They are scattered, some due to persecution. And their future is uncertain. Their daily life was threatened. So in the midst of all of that, it would, it would have been, you can, we can understand, it would be easy to forget, to be overwhelmed by their situation. They, they, would, they would forget the hope that they have. They would forget who God has made them to be. Brothers and sisters, I think we can understand that, right? For all sorts of reasons, our priorities shift. And we lose focus. And we forget what is most foundational. I'll, I'll just be very honest. I, I struggle. I have struggled with anxiety. I, I tend to be a very anxious person. And I know what Philippians 4 says, don't be anxious. And just telling me don't be anxious doesn't always help. 
You know what anxiety means? I forget who I am. I forget the ground that I get to stand on. And I get overwhelmed. And so I, I, I stress out and my mind goes a million places. Peter's talking to me and he's talking to you because I think you can probably relate to that story. He says, remember who you are. Peter begins, it, it, this truth is not only just foundational, it leads to exaltation. He is so overwhelmed by the good news for himself that he begins with just saying, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because of what God has done for me. Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God gave him new life. Why? Well, because of his great mercy. It wasn't because Peter was really smart or he was really bold. It wasn't any reason. Same thing with the church that he's talking to. They did nothing to deserve it. But according to God's great mercy, that's the initiator. God moves to them because that's who he is. God takes the initiative to move towards them with mercy. Brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Christ... That's exactly how God has treated you. You didn't deserve it. You, you wouldn't even look for it. But God has moved towards you in mercy. Because, as we learned a couple weeks ago, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves and what we would not do for ourselves. Because by nature, we don't want God. Because of our sin, we've rebelled against him. Peter is simply echoing what Paul says in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your sins. If you've been to a funeral, you've seen that dead people don't do anything. They can't. That's how we are in relationship to God. We cannot, we do not move towards him. God takes the first step. He moves towards us. And it wasn't reluctant or stingy. He wasn't annoyed or put out. These fools. Rather, he abounds in mercy. You know those Amazon trucks? There's a, there's a, there's a lot more to prime, a truckload more. There are storehouses of God's mercy. And he's, ab he's abundantly generous with it. He loves pouring it out. Not just drip by drip, but just lavishing it out. That's the mercy of our God. Who moves towards us. Those who rejected him. Those who are spiritually dead. Those who say, I don't want you or need you or prone to forget you, or prone to wander away from you. He shows us mercy. He moves toward us and says, I love you. And here's how much. He goes, I will make you alive again. He gives us new life. The life that we long to. We are always trying to fill this thing to, to, to say that we're enough, we're known, we're seen. And God says, you, you long for me and I move towards you 
and I give it to you. And he gives it to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God's great mercy is demonstrated. This is how much mercy he has, that he would send his son to live the life, one, that he would condescend to put on skin and bones and move into our neighborhood. And that he would go to a cross and pay the penalty for sin he did not commit so that we would be set free. He has taken the judgment for our sin. He's even taken the separation. And he gives us his righteousness. And he brings us this new life. And he's, and he, Peter says that we're born again to a living hope. We just sang about it. What does that even mean? Hope is a confident expectancy. And, and so this confident assurance is unique because it's a living hope. And it's living, what, what Peter is saying, it's, it's a hope, this it's confidence that is real and genuine. It isn't some cheap substitute. It's not like crossing your fingers and hoping something happens. It's living because Christ didn't stay on the cross and he didn't stay in the tomb, but he rose again. As Christ is alive, there is our hope. It is living. But it's also living because it grows in us. If you have, if you have been born again, this hope doesn't just stay stagnant, but day by day as we see God's faithfulness in our lives, what happens is our hope grows. It's alive. This is the hope that we have. This is what we've been born again to, of this living hope. See, through God's mercy, we've been made alive and given this hope, specifically that we have this incredible inheritance. When I think about inheritance, I think about, you know, money, property, family heirlooms, maybe some jewelry, some plates, maybe a house, that we get when a relative dies. But this isn't what Peter has in mind. You see, this word inheritance is deeply biblical. And Peter is connecting the Bible story for us here. Do you realize who gets an inheritance? Someone that's in the family. God is, he's saying that God has brought us into his family. And so the inheritance that we receive through God's mercy is that which was promised to God's people, beginning in Abraham and then all the way through the descendants. He's saying, do you realize God has made you part of his people? And these are not necessarily Jewish people that Peter's writing to. These are Jews and Gentiles. So people that were not part of the promise, he says, hey, do you realize you're part of the promise now? Peter's saying that because of Jesus, we have been made the people of God, rightful heirs of his kingdom and all his covenant promises. We even sang about it. What is the greatest part about our inheritance? That God will be our, uh, our God and we will be his people. In other words, our inheritance is God himself. Look, any inheritance that we would get today is subject to decay, loss, and corruption. If you've ever had a family member died, there's always disputes about money. Family politics always throws a wrinkle into things. 
Look, if you inherit stock options, I don't know if you watch the market these days, it's up and down like crazy. Property values. It's hot today, but maybe not tomorrow. Things break. Things get lost. Things fade. But not the inheritance that we have. In, in Christ, our, our inheritance will never perish, spoil, or fade. It is untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. So as we persist in faith, God continues then to guard us and our inheritance as we stand in him. So acting as two sides of the same coin, God's power energizes our faith, and our faith is the means by which God guards our inheritance. So what this means is that God is guarding us, and there is no end to his power and his might and his, and his strength. And so he will guard us to the very last day. This means that as we walk in him, as we stand in this living hope, we have a confidence. We have assurance that when all is fully revealed, that we will fully possess all the blessings and promises of our redemption. All right, come back here. This is where this touches down for us. Would you look around the room? Actually, look around the room. Look at least one person in the eyes. Look at those sitting next to you. Those across the room. Saints, we are those people who have received God's mercy, are born again, and have an incorruptible inheritance. You see, Maranatha Grace Church is not a location on Sylvan Avenue. It's not a building or just an organization. It is a people who have been made alive by God's abundant mercy. That is who we are. And what this should do to us then is it should make us grateful. We did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to merit it. We actually don't... We, we, would, we would shun it on our own. So grounds for boasting go out the window. It should be so oxymoronic to think about a self-righteous, arrogant, cold Christian. Because if we understand who we are as God's recipients of God's mercy, how, how should that not melt our heart? It would lead to gratitude, warmth, Welcome. And here's the best part. We sang about it. Carson read it. You know that God's mercy wasn't just poured out once. He says, God says there's morning mercies every day. New mercies for you every day. I have more than Amazon for you. This is who we are. And so it ought to cause us to be grateful. And I want to say, look, If you have not received God's mercy, friend, God's mercy is for you too. This identity, God holds out for you. Later in the letter, Peter says this, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here's how you receive God's mercy, friend. Open yourself up to him. Take hold of Jesus, the friend and redeemer of sinners. And hold fast to him. 
should also strengthen us and give us a renewed hope. I talked to many of you through the week and weeks. I know many of you are experiencing really hard seasons with a lot of uncertainties. And it's easy again to be overwhelmed by the moment. I want you to remember that you have been made alive by God and, and you have a hope that cannot be taken. So I invite you to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Knowing that he is guarding you and with you. Look, things may remain hard, but because of Christ, you have a living hope even in that moment. Three, it should cause us to grow in compassion and grace toward one another. As you looked around, there's no doubt that you saw people that you know and you love deeply. There are also those that you looked around and go, I don't know them all. There are some you looked around and said, I love the way that they think. There are others you looked around and said, that person's views are basic, stupid, naive. Look, people have different stories. And it's easy to kind of begin to level out the, the try, to, try to weigh people by that. But if we understand who we are and what God's made us to be, it actually gives us great compassion and empathy and, and grace toward one another. We recognize, again, that people have different stories. They're coming to God, into this moment, to this day, with different stresses and strains. They have different backgrounds. And so we can have grace towards them even as we move towards them. That we wouldn't write them off. They don't get it. Peter cuts to the quick and he says, if you're in Christ, your foundational identity is one who God has made alive. And if your brother or sister is in Christ, they too, even though you disagree on other issues. So understanding who we are, being made alive by God's mercy, ought to give us compassion. But we weren't saved, we weren't made alive just that we would remain ourselves and in our own little bubble. Turn to, or look down the page, to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Speaking of, to those who have been uh, trusted in Christ, Peter says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, God's work of redemption, his plan is fulfilled through the collective witness of his covenant people. Said, said more simply, God's purpose is for us to live as God's people and to display what he has done. He has made you individually alive and then sets you into a people. One of the great failures of modern Christianity is that like our culture, we have, been, we have predominantly focused on the individual. I even think you can see it in our hymns. It's often the pronoun that is often used is I and me, and it's very rarely the plural 
collective uh, first person, you know, we and us and our. Specifically, we emphasize each person's particular salvation and then their own spiritual walk. Yes, we might talk about being connected to a church, but even then I would argue that we primarily do so thinking about ourselves first. We ask, what ministries do they have that I want? Who is here that is in my stage of life? Where do these people agree with me? Is this place my style? Like, these aren't necessarily sinful questions, but they do emphasize the individual. Hear me. He listen to this, please. You individually matter. Your value, each and every one of you, is significant and precious. However, the point that I'm trying to make is that we often heighten the individual over the collective. We pick and choose when we want to step in, but really it's about us and our own desires. And if we do this in regards to who we are as God's people, we're actually left with an incomplete and inaccurate picture of God's purpose for us. That, that is, that we hear this, we actually misrepresent God. Chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says he keeps us from error. And he does so by using these terms, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God. And these words are specific and packed with meaning. One, they're collective words. Race, priesthood, nation, people, they highlight the collective, the body, the whole. Two, they're also covenantal. That is, they're tied to God's promises that, he, that he's made throughout Scripture prime, and initially to his people Israel. God collected them, chose them, called them, made them, and then he made promises to them. And Peter uses terms. These terms are actually, you can go back to Exodus 19, and you'll see these are the very words that God says about his people Israel, that I'm going to make you these people, a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Isaiah 43, 61 renews that promise for God's people. They are promises, again, made by God to his people, but where Israel failed to, to fully realize them, to obey, that they would step into that, Jesus has succeeded, and he's established a new and better covenant. And through him, we actually come into that covenant promise. That's why Hebrews says that Jesus has made a new and better covenant. Promise, a covenant. God is saying, you're, you're my covenant people. You're my special people. You're my people of promise. Those whom he has made alive. They're meaningful words. A, a chosen race, he says. Peter's highlighting God's electing mercy and grace. That God has chosen us to be born into a new race of people. We were all born into Adam, we learn in Romans 5. But now through Christ, we've been brought into a new family. By grace, through faith. God has made us a new race of people. He makes us a royal priesthood. We don't have royalty. I love Queen Elizabeth, by the way, but we don't have a royalty here. We don't really have priests. I mean, even if you grew up in a Catholic background, the, the, the idea of priests is different. 
In the Old Testament, the, the tribe of Levi were those who ministered in the temple, and their role as priests were to mediate between God and man. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people and administered God's grace to the people, to the, to the, to the, to the tribes. And while the Levites were priests in Israel, God actually said that, that, that Israel as a nation was to be a kingdom of priests. He says that again in Exodus 19.6. In other words, God's people, even in the Old Testament, were meant to mediate, to, to display God's presence among the world and welcome others to worship him. But they failed. But God's plan wasn't thwarted. He would still have a people that would display his glory to the world. Peter is saying by calling the church, a royal priesthood, he's saying we are those priests that represent God to the world. As priests, we offer spiritual sacrifices. We don't offer sacrifices for sin anymore because Jesus died once for all for sin. But we do offer sacrifices. In Romans, we read this. He says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That, that we offer these sacrifices of our lives now to be used by God. That as those that have received God's grace, that we would in praise, in worship, in service, in care for one another, that we would be those that have received God's grace and now share it with others. That, that, that vertical grace and mercy now moves horizontally with one another. And that as we walk out this life, that we are actually su supposed to welcome others in. That was one of the failures of Israel. They didn't welcome others. They just closed the gates up. God's purpose is always to set a people and that others would be drawn to him through them. And that's what we ought to do as God's people. We are a holy nation, he says. The word nation is the word ethnos, which is where we get the word ethnicity. And so what, what we see is that God has created a new ethnicity. There's no more Jew or Greek, no more Korean or Cuban, no more Chinese or German. Rather, we're made into this new nation. The, the hostilities between our, 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 our nations, our, our, our ethnicities, have been torn down because of Jesus. And, he, and, and God has set his affection on us. He's made us holy. He's devoted his care toward us and that we would now devote ourselves to him. That's what it means to be holy, that we're wholeheartedly devoted. And that as God's holy nation, that we are meant to reflect his character. Lastly, he says that we're people for God. And this simply means that God has taken a special care over us. He has set his affections on us. God didn't choose his people because they were strong or bright or had promise, but rather because he just chose to. And he said, you're the ones I've... You're the people that I've chosen. And I've made my people. Friends, here's our story. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Putting this all together and answering, who are we? We're God's people who are made alive and set within a community to display his glory. What this means is that the Christian life is more than just me and Jesus. Like, there are no free agent Christians if you're a sports person. We don't just float in and out when we want. The Christian life is a group project by design, and you guys, whether it's work or school, you may have some fuzzy feelings about group projects. They're not convenient or efficient. But God has designed the Christian life to be a group project, and it is not convenient, nor is it efficient, but it is God's design. So what does that mean for us? What is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to lean in and to participate. And this is where we come to our last passage. Chapter, one, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. For the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to... You can read it. it it's, it's really about elders. This section is about how leaders operate within the church and how they're to care for God's people. And it's really important. It's a passage that I go to all the time and I want to evaluate my life about how I'm caring for you as one of your pastors by this passage. And it is often very convicting because I fall short, dear brothers, and forgive me. Please. But in this, that God would care to give instructions about the attitude and disposition of a pastor to his people shows that God cares because he is the chief shepherd. However, I don't want to talk about elders right now. But I want to talk about the implications of what this passage means for us. Peter says that the shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, he, he's writing to fellow pastors with the implication that there are those that the pastor has direct oversight over and that those, those covenant people have agreed to live together in a community. It is often spoken of as the church is, we can see the church as the church universal and the church local. The universal church is people, the people of God throughout all the ages of all times. We're connected to them. We have a long heritage. But we also, but it, we also see in the scriptures, even in a passage like this, there is the church local. It is a local, specific, real-life expression of God's particular people. And this is who we are, Maranatha, we are a local expression of God's chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. So this is where we are called to live out our life in Christ together. Here and throughout scripture, we see that God's people are called to live intentionally with one another. While the words church membership are not in the Bible, the concept runs throughout it. And this is why we value it as a church. It's not to keep people out. It's not to create some secret society. It's not some class system. Rather, it's simply God's people stepping into what God has already done. We're doing so by committing ourselves to the Lord and to one another. And in this way, the life of the local church is not simply meant to be a priority. It is essential. In other words, I actually don't think that we can fulfill God's call in our life outside of the church a local church. It is so, 
you turn on the news, suicides are up, depression's up, anxiety's up, drug abuse overdoses are up. You go to New York City, you walk through the streets. There's eight million people that live there. It's not, not, it's not, isn't it one of the loneliest places you've ever been? We are lonely as a people. Our habits and trends all give testimony to it. God has given us the gift of what we long for. Why we, 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 we want it, but we don't always know where to get it. God says, do you see, I've made you alive? That you can actually flourish in a community? That you would grow? And this brings us back to our covenant then. The covenant is what, what, what we see is what gives shape to that life together. The last line of the covenant says this, that we would earnestly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other as we strive to grow in Christ together. Our covenant calls us to help each other live out our new identity in Christ. And doing so, we are actively taking responsibility for one another to encourage, to help, to serve, to love, to point them to Jesus. If we can go to verse 5 of, of that passage, Ling, uh, to do this, Peter says, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jonathan Lehman suggests that, that we do not join. Uh, Jonathan Lehman is a pastor and a, and, a, and, a, and a writer about, the, he writes a lot about the local church. And he suggests that we don't join a local church, but rather submit to one. That is a very provocative statement. But I think it's correct. And I don't always agree with Jonathan Lehman, but I think he's right here. This is one of the ways that the church is unlike any other social group. Joining is, when we think about joining, it's voluntary. We can give what we want, kind of go in and out when we, when we desire. We want to pull out, that's fine. Submitting requires humility. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It is being willing to give access and to others and give them a say in your own life. It is a willingness to speak into somebody else's life. We often want one, but not the other. We want people to speak into our life, but we don't want to be inconsiderate and step into to, to speak into somebody else's. Or we want to speak into somebody else's, but we do not want you to talk about me. Having humility welcomes both. God has created this community, and he invites us to participate. We don't create the Maranatha Grace community. God has already done that. We participate in it. We are to commit ourselves. And submission... This committing and submitting requires us to become vulnerable. I, I've been thinking more recently about transparency, being transparent with people, and being vulnerable, vulnerable with people. And I think there's a difference. Transparency, we get to say what we want to say. Well, I'll let you in my life as much as I want you to. Vulnerability says I'm opening myself up and I'm letting go of control so that, you, that I'm at a risk. You can misunderstand me. You can hurt me. You can disappoint me. That's what being vulnerable is. And this is what submission calls us to. 
It's it's an opportunity to open ourselves up, to take off our mask, to risk being known and seen with no frills and no makeup and no nice Christian-easy stuff. Will you take that risk? Again, being vulnerable requires us letting go of control. It requires total honesty with our others and with ourselves. It requires us moving out of the status quo and out of comfort. But transformation and growth never happens in the status quo and in comfort. I've lost some weight. It took a year. I worked hard. I changed eating habits. I feel quantitatively better and qualitatively better. I think both of those work. But I had to get up. We have to step into it, brothers and sisters. But I haven't just lost weight. I've actually been helped spiritually by others as well. The elders. I will tell you that the brothers have a healthier relationship than we've ever had. About openness and vulnerability. I don't know that they're here, but brothers like Ping and Eugene, sisters like Grace Mark, have been invaluable to me. And we've opened ourselves up to each other, sharing that we would actually grow. And what has happened when we let go of that is something beautiful. Not easy, but beautiful. This is what we're getting invited into. Here's what this could look like in our discipleship groups this week. Again, I I know this is really awkward for some. Spend some time looking at each other. I mean, right in their eyes. Look into their eyes and consider who God has made them to be. God knows their whole story. And he has acted with mercy toward them. Remembering God's work in their life and and in yours and humbly commit to take responsibility for one another. Commit to openly open your life to one another. Commit to confessing sin and reminding one another of God's grace for sinners. Commit yourself to sharing your hopes, your frustration, your loves. This is more than what we're just talking about being in a discussion group. We're saying be present for one another. Show up. I have failed to do this more times than I can count, but I want to commit myself to it again. Commit to, to one another. Say, I will point you to Jesus. I will fail you. I will frustrate you, but I will point you to Jesus, the chief shepherd. Like, this is a big ask. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to be uncomfortable. And people are going to get their toes stepped on. But this is how true life together begins and grows. And if we step into this looking to God for help and allowing his word and spirit to direct us, I am convinced that we will become a stronger, more vibrant, more encouraging, more joyful, more welcoming, more whole, and more holy church. But it will require risk. Some of you might even say, I don't buy it. That's fair. I'd say, try it anyway. What what do you got to lose? 
Are we? And I would say for those that are not members, I know this sermon was largely directed towards the or covenant members, but I want to say up front or at the back end now, I'm so glad you're here. What we hope in this series is not to exclude you, but to say, hey, this is who we are. I want to bless you and encourage you. Hey, you say, hey, this is not where God has called me. Peace be with you. Go somewhere where they preach Jesus and dig in. But we also want to say, hey, come on. God's up to something here. Let's step in. The answer to the question, who are we? We are those who have been given new life and identity in Christ and have been placed by God into a community of fellow disciples to live out this new life together. What do you say? Let's together proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's proclaim it to one another and to the world that Christ would be magnified. And God glorified in us built up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your abundant mercy. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. Don't deserve it. And to be honest, we can't even begin to fathom it. But you have shown it to us. Thank you. You've given us a living hope. You've set us into a people. You've given us a charge to walk out that life together. It's not easy. It's messy. But Lord, when, when we look to you, when we depend on you, when we look, seek to be led by your spirit and guided by your word, you do what we can't even begin to imagine. And Lord, I pray that you would do far more than we can imagine at Maranatha. I would pray that our, our best years are very much ahead of us and that we would flourish and that you would be kind as long as you would tarry to pour out your mercy upon generation upon generation that would gather and worship you here. To the 10th generation, we pray.